according to St. Mark. Now when the Pharisees and some of the scribes had come from Jerusalem, gathered around him, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders and they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. And so the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrine. And then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. For it is written, it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The grass withers flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever in the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Middle school. <laughs> I found it harrowing. Actually, when I was a kid, they called it uh, junior high, which of course is short for junior high school, a designation that I guess lost favor because it seems pretty condescending, right? A small sort of miniature version of the real thing. Anyway, I remember moving to new schools between my fifth and sixth grade year, and then again in the middle of my seventh grade year. Now, it's tough on an introvert to be thrust into new situations like that, among a whole crowd of new and unfamiliar faces, being singled out, afraid that people are secretly talking about you, or worse, laughing at you. It's especially tough on a pubescent introvert to have to make those kinds of social and psychological adjustments. I mean, when you're going through puberty, you're already excruciatingly self-conscious, right? I mean, every time you walk into a room, you're convinced that all the eyes are on you, judging you. I mean, what kind of clothes you wear, your haircut, how you walk. 
whether you've got something gross caught in your braces or you have a new sort of Vesuvian sized zit in the middle of your forehead that makes you look like a cyclops. I mean, all of which is bad enough in front of people you know. To have to make that trek in front of a group of strangers who are also supposed to be your new peers, it is a, a terror of, of unspeakable magnitude. When I walked into a new school in a different state for the remaining part of my seventh grade year, it was, all things being equal, awkward enough. But, <laughs> unbeknownst to me, apparently the folks in Michigan had moved on uh, beyond the early 70s infatuation with bell bottoms and love beads in ways that people in northern Indiana had not yet done. So when I walked into the new school and saw immediately that everyone wore straight leg jeans and no love beads, I immediately felt like a miscast character from a Cheech and Chong movie, a, a time-traveling retro love child. Now, as humans, a class of mammals, we, we maintain social boundaries. And those boundaries let us know who's on the inside and who's on the outside. Which is to say, they let us know who we have to pay attention to, who we have to take seriously, and who can be harassed or ignored. And almost immediately, right? I mean, no long investigations are necessary. We just look, we hear, and we know. Do they look right? Do they talk right? Do they know the customs that mark them as a part of our group? Are they, are they one of us? I mean, that's how it is among humans, as much as among wildebeests and orangutans. We need to know who poses a threat to the herd, who's, who's been vaccinated, who wears a mask, right? But whereas among animals, that kind of threat detection system is a necessary part of survival, it doesn't always serve us humans quite as seamlessly. Because the danger that we fear often has less to do with being eaten than with being polluted. Jesus runs into just this kind of social impulse in our gospel this morning. Now, if you recall from earlier this summer when we spent some time in Mark, Jesus has been making friends left and right, but for all the wrong reasons. Back in chapter 6, Jesus fed the 5,000, garnering for himself the buzz of potential candidate for messiahship. The crowds were convinced that Jesus could do for them what they had been unable to do for themselves, and were therefore prepared to immediately crown him king. Now, Jesus, not particularly enamored of the idea of throwing his hat into the political ring, took off by himself. After some time spent decompressing in isolation, he eventually stumbled across his disciples out in the middle of the sea. Them panicking and him walking on water. Remember that? After he and the disciples finally made it across, the folks Jesus had escaped from hours before found him once again, and started hounding him to do some more miracles. Well, 
apparently the religious leaders get wind of Jesus' new popularity, and they decide to go check him out for themselves. And when they find him, they catch sight of his disciples who are blatantly not following certain customs about hand-washing. Now, Jesus sees what's happening. The Pharisees are doing what the rest of us often do upon meeting new people, entering new situations. They've put their highly trained sense of smell to work, attempting to determine just who's a part of the herd. Are these folks a threat to, if, if not our lives, then perhaps our way of life? Do, the, the, do they do the stuff that way that we do stuff? Which is another way of saying, do they care about the things that we care about? Are they with us or against us? Friend or foe? Comrade or threat? And the Pharisees use the only censors they have at that point, which is custom. Of course, we know that custom sometimes gets dressed up itself in church clothes, doesn't it? I mean, it's easy to give stuff we care about a kind of theological turbocharge by saying that our personal prejudices and desires uh, align with God. <laughs> there was a woman at uh, a church I used to pastor down in Appalachia who was unfailingly sweet and kind to me. She had this great apartment on the bottom floor of a this huge old house. It's filled with treasures from a bygone era. Lots of lace and, and, and flowers. I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, she served me tea when I came to visit. At any rate, Mary, who'd been born around the turn of the century, uh, 20th century, that is, was raised with certain ideas about what appropriate Christian behavior consisted of. And, and she wasn't afraid to let anybody know about it. <laughs> or about what God thought about it. Now, I can't tell you how many times I got a call from one of the people in the church who had grown to me, Mary's doing it again. And I would say, well, what'd she do this time? What'd she say? And they'd say, well, she told a visitor that we frowned on women wearing pants in church. And I said, but we don't frown on women wearing pants in church. <laughs> they say, well, yeah, tell that to Mary. I said, well, she needs to quit telling people that stuff. Well, nah, no kidding. We need to stop the opioid problem in Appalachia. You got about an equal shot of getting either of those things done. Right? I mean, we know, don't we? I mean, it's easy to substitute our biases for God's. Sort of convincing ourselves that God just doesn't approve of things with which we also disapprove. Anne Lamott famously said that you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. When I think of that, I just think, ouch, right? But it's, it's one thing to carelessly assume that God's pretty much like we are. 
and so work to exclude people who don't live up to our ideas of righteousness or acceptableness, which is a kind of narcissistic self-deception. But that's how our gospel this morning is often understood, as an admonition to get yourself sorted out on the inside. Make sure that your motives are all sort of squared away. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be all religious. And then also be a jerk, right? You can't do the two things together. And Jesus even says something like that, right? He says, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrine. God doesn't like women wearing pants in church, right? Now read this way, it's easy to dismiss because generally speaking, people don't go walking around viewing themselves as hypocrites. I mean, we're the heroes of our own stories, right? And we think, well, obviously Jesus is talking about somebody else. I mean, I'm authentic. I'm not perfect. But I'm much more like the sort of non-washing, uh, hand-washing disciples than the squinty-eyed religious leaders. But here's the thing. Sometimes our threat detection sensors aren't tuned just to tell us from them to reassure us that we're all right. Often, we dogmatize our opinions and customs as a way of sort of maintaining, holding on to power, protecting our positions in the pecking order by keeping those people out. So after I moved to this middle school and got the whole sort of bell-bottom, love-bead thing straightened out. I finally made my way into uh, a select group, you know, the one that's affectionately known in everyone's middle school experience as the popular kids. I got invited to parties uh, with kids who lived at the top of the heap. And I felt, uh, just be honest here, I felt pretty good about myself. Finally, I thought, we can put that whole love bead thing to rest once and for all. And so I skated through my eighth grade year. I loved it. Not a common thing to hear, actually. I felt like sort of one of the princes of a particularly exclusive little kingdom. But then, <laughs> ninth grade came along which is its own set of problems and challenges. And without asking my permission, some of my friends started trying to widen the circle, inviting new people to be a part of the popular kids. And as wrapped up as I was in my own adolescent life, I realized that I couldn't just say out loud, look, we've got a good thing going here. I mean, let's not goof it up by inviting more kids. That's just going to destabilize an otherwise stable system. A system, I would not say out loud, but think to myself, by which I benefit. <laughs> I, who know I couldn't say that without 
sounding like a jerk, sure felt it anyway. Which is ironic, right? I mean, since a little more than a year prior, I'd been at the bottom of the social heat, languishing in passe fashion trends that would have made Greg Brady squeamish. I, who had somehow climbed to the top, didn't want anybody to threaten my perch there. Which kind of sound, reminds me of some first and second grade, uh, second grade, second generation immigrants who've made good, but who now sort of want to pull up the ladder behind them, making sure that nobody else gets to climb up. I mean, sometimes they're the ones yelling loudest about how we need to secure the borders, you know, keep those people out. Can you hear that? It's not my community anymore. They're those people. A threat. Now, that's what's so interesting to me about our text this morning. Now, the, the Pharisees in Jewish history were, by and large, actually considered to be the good guys. Much of what the Jewish law had been concerned with had to do with temple worship. The problem was the temple was in Jerusalem, which was a pretty good distance from the outlying areas, especially Galilee, where Jesus and his disciples were from. Moreover, there had been significant chunks of Jewish history when there was no temple, where the temple had been destroyed. And so along came the Pharisees over a hundred years before Jesus was even born. And they eventually brought the revolutionary idea that Jews should be able to practice their faith wherever they were. Whether or not they could get to Jerusalem and the temple to offer the proper sacrifice. And the whole hand-washing thing, initially was a way of, of, of liberating people from the difficult-to-observe temple regulations and allowed common folks to observe purity requirements in the comfort of their very own homes, right? Many of which, as I've said, were a long way from Jerusalem. You see, see what I mean? Initially, the Pharisees were concerned to open up the faith as wide as possible. But what draws the attention that we focus on in our text today is that by the time of Jesus, some of the Pharisees moved toward theological libera liberation had come to be sort of social boundary maintenance a kind of quick threat detection system that worked not to open up the gates to full participation as widely as possible, but, but instead sort of set up obstacles to new folks joining the popular kids at the party. The Pharisees' insistence on dressing up customs in sort of dogmatic clothes became a way to retain power by keeping those people you know, the, the, the wrong sort of people out. 
in the last part of our text for this morning, Jesus lists the stuff that comes from within the human heart that defiles, right? He names all the big ones, from fornication to murder. And he wants to point out that it's not the external stuff that's a problem, like whether or not your hand, you wash your hands appropriately, but the real problem comes from within. Hypocrisy isn't just a sort of personal idiosyncrasy, after all. It's a big part of what drives people away. See, they talk a good game, but when it comes right down to it, they're just selfish and insecure like everybody else, talking about God like they know. But you see, Jesus knows the dangers of sounding righteous and pure while you're secretly wallowing in cruelty and exclusion, of saying one thing in the breathy tones of piety or patriotism while simultaneously doing what you need to in order to retain your own power and influence. In other words, you better get it right on the inside first because the inside is where God is, and the inside is where God is calling you to throw open the doors and invite everybody in. To embrace those who are different from you. To love those who look and talk in ways that seem foreign to you. Those who make you feel uncomfortable because you're positive that they don't meet your exacting standards of propriety and decorum. Those you're sure that God can't possibly love the way they are, which is most decidedly not like us. And even after all this time has elapsed, the church is often just as quick to erect barriers to keep people out, turning customs into dogma, human precepts into doctrine. And unfortunately, many people's experience of the church is having the ladder pulled up just as they reach for it. And what they hear is, um, thanks for inquiring, but we're fine right here just the way we are. We've already got things pretty much the way we want them. I mean, the way God wants them, right? So getting things right on the inside is just what Jesus commands so that these folks on the outside can find a home. And he says, it's not what's on the outside that, that's causing the problem for those who want to follow anyway. It's what's on the inside that's causing most of the problems. So the question that this text poses to us who've lived so long on the inside, is what treasured customs and human precepts are we willing to set aside so that we can get things right on the inside and finally provide a welcome to those who are on the outside wanting to come in. When people walk through our doors wearing life's equivalent of bell bottoms and love beads, can we find a place for them at the table next to us? Because here's the thing. If we're going to be true to the Jesus who welcomed us when we were on the outside, 
we better figure out a way to let in as many people as we can. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.